The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio. It's time now for the Doctor's Lounge Show with Dr. Scott Barber. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on America's Web Radio. It's good to be back today. Um, today we're going to talk a little bit about the fact that doctors are just people, which is why it is so important that we maintain a free market healthcare system so that the power remains in the hands of patients and not in the hands of faceless and unaccountable bureaucrats. I'm going to give you some personal anecdotes today and also try and connect some dots about some things that are happening in the world that are very positive, like a recent Supreme Court uh, ruling against the uh, EPA. The um, I want to just say I'm happy to be back. I was just out at UFC Vegas 57 with one of the fighters that I sponsor, Cody Durden, and um, we had a really great time. I went out there with former UFC great Diego Lima, who recently retired, and Cody's coach, Chad, who's a BBJ expert. I absolutely just love this sport, and I've been blessed to be invited by Cody a couple of times to go out and corner for him and experience the uh, entire UFC fight week, and it's it's really great. I'm addicted to this sport. I love it so much because I respect the fighters so much, the the courage that they have to uh, get in a ring and put their skills against somebody else who spends their entire life working on their skills. Um, the the skill set involved is absolutely un- unbelievable. These these people are not only super courageous, but they're fantastic athletes, and they spend so much time working on their craft. I've been watching Cody now for a couple of years, and he's just transformed his body, transformed his game, and he really is just uh, an unbelievable mixed martial artist right now. It was uh, a lot of fun. We show up usually on a Tuesday. The fighters kind of come in. They do a lot of media events. They get their gear, which is always cool for me because I get UFC sweats and shorts and bags and shoes and hats and all kinds of cool things. Uh, One of the things you notice when you go there is the camaraderie between the fighters. They all have this sort of shared experience. They support one another. I personally wasn't that familiar with... uh, athletes cutting weight. I remember seeing some friends in high school cut weight. Uh, but at this level, this professional fighter level, what's amazing is is how these fighters walk around at at uh, you know, 200 pounds and then they'll be 170 pounds over the course of the week for the weigh-ins and then they kind of rehydrate and start eating and then they're back up to 190 on the fight day. And uh, it's a real science how they how they manage their diet and their fluid intake and they you know they'll show up on a Tuesday they check in with a nutritionist and they get their meals and they get their plan for how much water and then boom on the day of the weigh-ins they happen to be just the weight they need to be and then they're immediately given all kinds of nutritious drinks and rehydration and everything and then the fight goes on we also get an opportunity to go to the training center there they have uh, the training facility I believe it's called the Apex it's a very cool center. It's got 
you walk in and it's got the whole history of the UFC with all the Hall of Famers pictures up on the wall. You see all the fighters in there. They have every sort of training material and modality that you would need rings and punching bags and weight rooms and a, a training room and a sauna and an ice bath. And it's really uh, a sports medicine doctor's, uh, you know, candy farm or, or a toy store. I mean, it was really just so cool to be there. And typically when we go there, we work out in the hotel. We're just kind of resting. We, we go to these media events. We get our gear. And then we get to go to the training center, usually where we'll go and we'll work out. And this particular time, Cody and Diego and Chad wanted to just do the corporate workout, which is essentially hot tub and sauna. And I didn't really have any clothes for that. And <clears throat> I was unable to get into the men's room because there was another fighter who was working on cutting weight. And so I had my wallet and things. So I went out and I just kind of sat in the lobby and did some people watching and just listening to these fighters that you see on TV all the time discussing cutting weight and their training programs and how they manage their social media and all their trials and tribulations. It was just really an interesting time. And one of the things I love about sports is the, you know, everything you need to learn about being a great person, we learn on the athletic field. And I truly believe that athletics teaches you how to set goals, how to be a gracious winner and a good loser, how to work with people that you like, work with people that you dislike how to fail and dust yourself off, reassess, and then try again, try to figure out what went wrong, solve those problems, and then again and again and again. And all of these qualities are what make you successful in life. And I remember thinking when I was younger that uh, I was going to be a professional soccer player. I was good in, in, as a little kid. I was good in high school, and I, I was the Hawaii State Player of the Year back in 1983, and I really thought that that was the, the thing for me. And then I went to UCLA, uh, which was the number one school in the nation at the time, and I realized that God did not have becoming a professional soccer player in store for me. But all of the effort and energy and character issues that I learned during that time prepared me for switching over to something else. I became a good rugby player, ended up being a national champion and an All-American. And when I transitioned those same skill sets into medicine, it allowed me to be a successful doctor. And that's why I was really looking forward to my kids finding a sport that they love so that they could learn those same character traits, learn those same values, and practice it. And sadly, my girls are not really interested in the kind of sports that I was, but I have one daughter who's become an amazing horseback rider. She just won third at the Nationals, and she's really doing fantastic with that. And my other daughter is getting ready to release her first album, and she's really strong in music, and my good friend, Big Block Spencer, who's a three-time Grammy Award-winning music producer, has been working on her with that, and her first single will be available this Friday on Spotify and all other uh, platforms where you can obtain music. Her name is Sydney B. That's Sydney with a Y. And so I'm really excited about that. I digress a little bit because I'm beaming with pride over my daughters, but the main point that I'm trying to make here <clears throat> is that character matters, and at the end of the day, Doctors are just people 
They're no better and no worse than anybody else. And because we're just people, in order for you to have true medical freedom, you have to you have to get your health care in a free market health care system because when you use socialized medicine, we cede that power to government bureaucracies and government bureaucracies don't care about you. They don't care about your well-being and they don't foster character in the doctors who are providing the care. And in fact, I would argue that they foster a, a lack of character and it's uh, it's important stuff. Now, When I was young, I was a bit naive about the world, as you should be. You should not be as cynical as I am now without you know, getting beat up by life a little bit. But when I first got out, I worked hard because my father would say, you know, Scott, if you're going to do a job, do it to the best of your ability. You owe it to other people to do your best. If you're employed by somebody, you got to you know, do your best. And I just assumed that everybody else was that way. I also was taught about honesty and integrity. And listen, I'm not here to say I'm any paragon of virtue. I'm a sinner like everybody else. But I was raised by parents who really instilled with me a sense of honor and a sense of doing the right thing. And so it took me years to see that not everybody behaves that way. And uh, it's important because it affects the end product of your medicine. And... Um, you know, I when I think about sports nowadays with money being so prevalent in sports, it really affects people's behaviors, and and uh, we see we see how uh, people can be influenced negatively by the money. But I remember when the Olympics was was uh, a fledgling, uh, or I'm sorry, I remember when the Olympics years ago was really amateur and if you're old like me you remember the days of sort of the old western countries where it's all amateur athletics and we'd go against the you know at the time and i use this euphemistically the evil eastern bloc where all of their athletes usually were in the army (laughs) which was supposedly their profession but of course they were just employed by the government and they were professional athletes and so we always had our amateurs going against professional athletes and i really enjoyed a lot of those stories and I, you know, I think about the marathon where uh, I can't remember the name of the two guys, but the person who was winning the marathon sort of came into the finish line and there was a lot of uh, commotion and confusion there. And he was uh, confused about where the finish line was. And so he stopped running. The person who was going to come in second recognized that he didn't realize he hadn't crossed the finish line and he stayed behind him and sort of motioned him to the finish line and allowed the person who would have won to cross the finish line first and the guy who came in second came in second but he could have just not done anything and just ran across the line and won and when he was asked after the after the race why why did you do that why did you allow him to win and he said I didn't allow him to win anything he won he just got confused by the end of the finish line and so he said I just made sure things happened the way God intended them to happen and I really love that kind of stuff. I remember in the Olympics, uh, the sprinter who uh, pulled his hamstring. And, uh, you know, he's obviously devastated. He's trying to finish the race, but he's clearly going to come in last because his hamstring was pulled and his father came running out onto the track. The security at first tried to stop him, but he they recognized that he was his father, and his father came out and helped him across the finish line. Um, 
I remember Bob Beeman in the Mexico City Olympics j- jumping 29 feet, two and a half inches in the long jump. It was just a freakish jump at the time. I want to say he beat the existing world record by like two feet or something. I mean, it was just, you know, that moment where everything comes together. And I always love the stories about Jesse Owens in the 1936 Olympics where he was going up against a German uh, competitor who was also very good, and it was sort of between them who was going to win the gold medal in the long jump. And Jesse Owens foot faulted on his first two qualifying jumps. And this German, you know, this is, you know, the, the backdrop of coming into Nazi Germany, the 36 Olympics and the master race and all this kind of stuff. And this German competitor goes up to Jesse Owens and tells him, hey, listen, you're clearing the qualifying length by so much and you're foot faulting. Just why don't you take off just a little bit behind the board to make sure that you don't foot fault and you'll still clear the distance by enough to qualify. And sure enough, that's what happened. And Jesse Owens went in, went on to win the gold medal. I actually love this stuff. The other thing that we learn about sports that is important to transition into real life, and I promise I'm going to connect the dots here to how this affects medicine, but... You know, things that you drop on the drawing board don't necessarily work. You have to put them into play to understand when and if they work. And if they don't, you need to you need to make adjustments. And one of the things that frustrates me about the bureaucracy and the left in politics is they they put together uh, these policies and procedures without any concept of the ramifications and they just run with it and they have no you know they have this idea of this utopia in their mind like we want universal health care and we want everybody to have health care and it sounds great but it's just not reality and what you end up getting is you get a bunch of bureaucrats getting paid to really contribute nothing and you end up destroying health care for everyone and we see it over and over again same thing with socialism we get these people that keep pushing for socialism and yet socialism is responsible for tens of millions if not hundreds of millions of deaths in the 20th century it's failed everywhere it works and it, it or sorry it fails everywhere that it's been tried and it brings misery and economic destruction every single time and yet here we go again and i always think about in sports you know we learn to try things out and i you know i can remember in football you draw up a play and coach says all right this is going to be the play and and then you run the play in practice and you see that wow the i i expected this receiver to be a bit faster and i didn't realize that the defensive back was going to be able to get over into the flat and cover this it doesn't work so you have to make an adjustment and that's how real life works and when the founding fathers set up this country, the whole concept was to be these separate incubators of d- democracy, meaning we have these 50 states. The 50 states can try different policies and procedures about how to run a state. We can see what works and what doesn't work, and we can make adjustments. The other thing is there may be people who want to run things one way and people who want to run things another way you can vote with your feet you can move to locations where they are implementing policies that you agree with and you can go to other locations and uh and and follow different policies based on what your preferences are and that was how things were supposed to be and with healthcare we are constantly trying to or we're we're being forced to embrace this government controlled one size fits all top down 
uh, healthcare system that's failing everywhere else. And the proponents of these policies are lying to you, constantly trying to tell you things like the healthcare in in um, Cuba is better than the healthcare in the United States. I mean, it's so utterly ridiculous on the face of it. They try to tell us that the universal healthcare in places like the United Kingdom and Canada is superior to the United States, and it's just utterly ridiculous on the face of it. Um, I remember going to Denmark with my family on vacation a few years ago, and my youngest daughter was probably about nine years old at the time, and we had hired this kind of Hans Christian Andersen type guy. He was dressed as Hans Christian Andersen, the the famous uh, child story storybook writer. And he was basically taking us around Denmark, uh, taking us around Copenhagen and showing us all the different things. And he was a real big, he was an American who was an actor by trade and he moved to Copenhagen and he was just a real big socialist. He liked free everything and you know, the one thing I noticed about Denmark was uh, things were very expensive. I, d- listen, Denmark was a beautiful country. I absolutely loved this place. We went to a amusement park called Tivoli that I believe was one of the oldest m- amusement parks in the world, and it was absolutely fantastic. I absolutely loved Denmark, but not very many people drive cars. Their flats are very small. They have a lot of high taxation. And so this Hans Christian Andersen character, every you know, we'd go to, to breakfast. They, they had this tradition there where you drink a shot of Jägermeister in the morning. I can't remember what that was about, but uh, we did that. And he was sort of telling us about the culture of Denmark and telling us a little bit about his life as an actor and how he came to live in Copenhagen. And he was talking about free health care and free transportation and free this and free that. And, of course, me being me, I was dying to confront him on his on his assertions and of course my wife grabs me by the arm and she's you know gives me that look like just let it go we're having fun on vacation i was kind of like all right i let it go and my nine-year-old daughter looks at him she picks up my empty shot glass and she points at him and says mister nothing is free and i couldn't have been more proud of her because it is so true nothing is free the only thing that changes is who pays and what happens with these government bureaucracies is they tax the money away from people, which prevents the people who earned it from using it in productive ways. In my case, if you take money from me, I'm not able to create value by opening other locations, hiring more people, and creating a benefit to society. The government takes it from us. They spend it They spend it. Uh, Irrationally, They spend it irresponsibly. We've always talked about the great Milton Friedman, the, the, the uh, Nobel Prize winning economist, talking about the four ways to spend money. You can spend other people's money on other people. That's the worst. You can spend other people's money on yourself, right? Other people's money on yourself means the money is... It's no object, but quality matters because you're buying it for yourself. You can spend your money on other people. In that situation, cost matters because it's your your money, but the quality of whatever you're buying doesn't really matter because it's not for you. And then the best way to spend your money is spending your money on yourself. In that scenario, cost matters. It's your money. And the quality of what you're purchasing matters because you're getting it for yourself. And when the government takes your money and spends it on other things, 
they're creating the worst situation because they are spending other people's money on other people where neither cost nor quality matter. And this is true of your health care. Now, we see it in other other uh, uh, situations. Uh, I was kind of, you know, thinking about the uh, recent Supreme Court ruling where uh, Texas, along with 16 other states, sued the Environmental Protection Agency uh, over uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So the EPA, it was ruled in a 6-3 to ruling that the EPA does not have the broad authority to require states to decarbonize their electricity sectors. And this is a really important thing. And something that I recognized in my own life um, is that over time, what has happened is that Congress, the Senate and the House of Representatives, has ceded power to the bureaucracies, the EPA, the CDC, the uh, you know Board of Education, all these agencies that are populated with unaccountable bureaucrats, meaning we don't have the ability to vote them out of office if they uh, support policies that we don't agree with. And so the, the Congress has gotten in the habit of writing these very broad-based laws that give the bureaucracies this immense power to do whatever they want to us. For example, they can just broadly say you're going to take a vaccine, or they could just say you're going to be wearing a mask no matter what. Or they're going to say your children, like they're trying to say in California, and I believe in New York, they're trying to say that school-aged children are going to have to be vaccinated before going to school. And... When when unelected bureaucrats are making these policy decisions, it essentially takes away the power of the people to control the the governing class. And, you know, the whole foundation of American political society is the consent of the governed. And if you if you don't have the ability to remove the power makers from office, then we're essentially living in an enslaved situation. And so this SCOTUS decision uh, against the EPA was enormous because the Supreme Court is basically telling Congress, you can pass a law, but you got to pass a law. And then the bureaucracies can implement those laws, but they have to be clear laws. And this particular one was about energy, but it's going to also have ramifications for other sectors like healthcare when they write these broad-based laws that allow bureaucracies like the CDC to interpret them however they want and implement it however they want. And, you know, we have no no power to resist. And um, we're seeing a lot of that right now. And, of course, I'm going to stay away from the topic because I don't want to be attacked and canceled in this in this very broken world. But we all know what's going on out there. And whatever your view is on what's happening, you have to admit that we don't have a very organized process that is responsible to the people for dictating how and what we do with certain things, and it's creating chaos. Now, I started thinking about this this SCOTUS decision and how monumentally important it is. The other point that's worth making right now is our country is really broken and we're really off course. Our health care is really, is really against it. I mean, we really do almost ostensibly have socialized medicine in this country with the passable passing of the Affordable Care Act, which basically the government told insurance companies exactly what they have to supply for an insurance program, how much they can charge, and how much they can lose uh, money-wise. 
they essentially neutered the free market system. And so people are still under the belief that if you have Blue Cross Blue Shield or you have Aetna or you have United, that somehow you have a free market healthcare system and you really don't because the government has so much power to control what insurance companies provide. And what I mean by that is, you know, when I was young, I used to be able to buy a, a catastrophic policy, meaning if I got cancer, or I got hit by a bus, things were covered. But if I needed stitches or a checkup and things like that, those things were not covered very well. And I had to pay out of pocket, but it worked for me because I was young and healthy and my chances of needing to go to the doctor was very small. And I really just needed protection in case something really bad happened to me. And the benefit of that was it was cheap. But nowadays, you don't have those options. And so a young person trying to get health insurance has to pay for prenatal care if they're a young single person and there's you know they're not going to be getting pregnant and the government's intent there is they want to be able to take more money from more people and spread it around the way they want to but when they do that they do it incredibly inefficiently and and it causes a deterioration of the quality of your care and we've demonstrated that on this show over and over again I'm going to talk about it a little bit more today but this idea of Seating authority to unelectable bureaucrats got me thinking about the European Union. And I don't know how much you guys are aware of the, the term Brexit, but it was British exit from the European Union. And for those of you who don't know about the European Union, essentially after World War II and the ashes of World War II, European countries got together and the idea was to have uh, economic relationships to foster the rebuilding of of Europe. Uh, it eventually uh, became the uh, European Union. Um, I wrote some notes down here about the European Union. Um, I want to say there's something like uh, 20, 26 states or 26 countries in the European Union. And uh, Britain, because of their loss of sovereignty, basically had this European Union that was run by a government that was stationed in Brussels, Belgium, and they were passing regulations that were affecting all the countries, including Britain, and basically taking power away from British voters. And so Britain uh, elected to leave, to exit the European Union. And this be, this uh this process became known as Brexit. And they had a referendum in Britain back in 2016. The leave, meaning Brexit, won. And and it um, was a monumental thing. And one of, the, one of the reasons, or let me let me just go over some of the reasons. I found this great little paper in the Daily Wire that was talked about 11 reasons to leave the European Union, or 11 things you should know about leaving the European Union. But uh, so it passed in Britain by a margin of 52% to 48% to leave. And let me tell you, the people in power in Britain wanted to stay. They want because they they get a, the, the bureaucrats and the permanent political class in Britain gets a lot of power from the European Union and being in it, money and power, but at the expense of the citizens. And according to the Daily Wire, 
their reporting on it, they said the European Union has outlived its original purpose. The concept of the European Union began as a way for European nations to forge economic cooperation with, with each other after World War II, especially as a way to restore relations between Germany and France. The partnership became known as the European Economic Community in the late 1950s. Uh, this also allowed them to unite and to fight against the Soviet Union and communism. Communism. It officially became known as the European Union in 1993, and now it has devolved into an inefficient power-grabbing bureaucracy that has weighed down Britain. And they talk about some of the issues that are going on. Look, uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, stated what it is about some of these people who enjoy the freedoms of democracy, who enjoy the elected representatives being accountable to the people. Thatcher said in a Forbes interview in 1992, why do they want to substitute a bureaucracy for it? What's the matter? What's happened to them? I will tell you the European Commission loves its power, power for power's sake. It's not what we fought for. This uh, this article keeps going out on me, and it makes me think uh, the powers that be are trying to cancel me because everything I try to share with you guys, there's somebody it seems they're trying to, to cancel me. But uh, right now, since 1973, the government has sent over $500 billion to the European Union. This is three times the annual NHS budget. That's the National Health Service uh, in Britain. Uh, The EU now costs the United Kingdom over 350 million pounds a week, nearly 20 billion pounds a year. Um, Cities from the Cardiff Business School and University of Buckingham have stated that the European Union membership is costing 11% of Britain's annual GDP, and those costs were set up as a result of austerity measures as well as to cover the costs of the new European Union projects. Now, this cost is just like any other bureaucracy. They're taking money out of the economy. They're passing rules and regulations that affect their citizens. And the people of Britain had no power to remove the bureaucrats from office and to protect themselves. And so their only option was Brexit. And we're going to need to start thinking along those lines in this country in terms of getting ourselves away from these bureaucracies, whether it's the Department of Education or the the stranglehold that uh, the CDC and and Medicare and Medicaid and these government entities hold over our health care. We're going to have to start moving towards more free market uh, systems or we're going to lose our freedoms altogether. And I'm going to get more into that when we come back from this break. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to me on America's Web Radio. We'll be right back. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? 
If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on America's Web Radio. And today we're talking about the fact that doctors are only people. We're just people, just like everybody else. There's some good, some bad, some talented, some not so talented. And we've been talking about the problem with, with ceding authority to bureaucracies that are unaccountable, that don't follow the wills, the will of the people. And when they do things that we don't approve of, we have no mechanism in place for removing them. And one of the things that has always frustrated me about the debate over free market healthcare versus socialized medicine is the concept of the universal term of healthcare as if it's all the same thing. And whenever you hear people on the left talk about getting your healthcare, they're talking about this nebulous, sort of ambiguous, not really well-defined idea of a white coat and this idea that you'll just get whatever you want whenever you want it. And the reality is the absolute opposite is true. And I have lived it and I have experienced it over and over again. And that's why I'm trying to give you guys information from the inside to counter what they're telling you. This idea that the government will tax you and that they will provide you your health care is not true. They're not providing your health care. They're preventing you from getting your health care. And what happens is, as the bureaucracy grows, as they spend more and more money on things that are not really related to health care, on administrators and things like that, the money available, and there's no cost measures. So you've got people practicing health care with no thought about the cost of what they're doing. You get costs that get out of control. And so as a measure, they start limiting their services. So basically anything that doesn't have a great return for for the hospital uh, that requires for example complicated procedures that require talented doctors that you know probably command more money. They don't want that. They want to replace the doctor with lesser trained people like physicians assistants and nurse practitioners. And so what happens is the the number of services go down and then they start rationing your care, and they do it by a number of different ways, by making it impossible for you to see your doctor. I actually have a doctor right now that uh, um, I'm trying to see that's my doctor. I've been leaving messages all week, and these this 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 place is not particularly good or bad. It's just a typical healthcare. I can't get in touch with a person, and I can't get somebody to call me back, and I'm a connected person. I'm a doctor. Like, I have the ability to get things done because this is the environment I work in, and I still can't get the access that I need. 
I was telling you guys last week or the week before about a very famous football player that every single one of you would know. And this person texted me and said, Scott, my wife is having a certain issue and I can't get in to see a doctor. Can you help me? I had to call a personal friend of mine to say, hey, can you deal with this very famous person's wife? And I got to thinking to myself, now you got to be, you know, one of the most famous athletes in the world in order to have access to basic healthcare systems. And this has just got to stop. And we got to move in a different direction. Now, I've always talked about my experiences when I was going through my training and how the Veterans Administration hospitals, which are totally government run, they're pure government entities, are just the most horrific places. And I'm always thinking to myself, I want to write a book about this. I remember one time I was at some kind of meeting and I was talking about the VA in very negative terms with other doctors. And everybody was kind of nudging me and pointing to another person. And apparently I was right in front of the doctor who ran a VA in a certain location. I won't, I won't say where it was. And he kind of looks at me and he's like a little bit offended about the VA. And I'm kind of sitting there thinking, you know, maybe talking about how lame the VA institution is, is in poor taste in this social setting. But I didn't know what to do. And I just looked at him. I said, come on, man, you got to agree. And he was kind of like, yeah, you're right. I mean, he knows the VA is a government run bureaucracy that is horribly run. I talk about the first time I was on call at a VA at night. I was literally not a, you know, I was, <laughs> I was literally like one of my first days as a doctor and it becomes after hours, which at the VA is like two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, and it's all of a sudden you're the, the, the SOD. I was like, what is that? It's the surgeon of the day. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? It's like you're responsible for every surgical patient in the hospital. What are you talking about? I don't know anything. Like, I don't know how to run a code. I don't have the ability to, but I have the name doctor in front of my name. So the way the bureaucracy works, well, you're a doctor, aren't you? So you're the SOD. You're the person in charge of everything, even though I have no ability to handle any of this stuff. And every time you guys hear on TV about stories about the deaths in VA due to incompetence and stuff like that, I'm just here to tell you they're not accurate. It's way more than that because stuff happens there all the time that is not reported, but because of the lack of access to quality health care, quality doctors, stuff happens. I remember thinking when I was on call, man, this is truly the house of God. If you've ever read that book, you know, doctors have a very little influence on, on, you know, whether people live or die and it's really up to God. And man, I learned that at the VA. It was just, things just happened how they happened. And it has to do with perverse incentives. You know, you got a bureaucracy that once implemented does not service the customer. Its goal is to preserve the bureaucracy. And I've told this story many, many times, and I'll share it again because it's so shocking. But my buddy and I were orthopedic surgeons. We're the, I want to say we're the fifth year and the third year. Our job was to go to the VA and run the orthopedic service. And being the hardworking people that we were, one of the things we noticed right off the bat was the VA was very inefficiently run, mostly because people just were refusing to do their jobs. And rather than asking people to work, we just started doing it for them. So we would come in the morning, we would go up to the holding area, bring the patient down ourselves, put them on the table, set everything up, drape. I would do the operation. If I needed something, I would scrub out. I would go down to the core where all the sterile instrumentation was kept. I would get that material, come back, scrub back in, do the case. When I was done, I wheeled the patient 
back into the recovery room. I came back in, and then I turned the room over. I had to mop the floors and change all the drapes and wipe down the bed. And all. It's called turning over the room. We would do it. And then we would go, and we'd get the next patient. And in, in just a short period of time, we had, like, tripled the output of the, the operating room. And my partner and I were really proud of it because we were being – we were showing initiative. We were solving problems, and we were working really hard to service our patients. And then one day, about three weeks after we started doing this, we get a message that the director of the hospital, Dr. A.J. First, wants to talk to us. So my buddy Lex and I, we get in the elevator and we're looking at each other like, I don't know, they're probably going to give us medals and they probably want to get a, you know, get our busts so they can put bronze busts of us in the lobby because of how awesome we are. Man, he pulled us into his office and I want to say it was like six or eight hours he lectured us on things like ERISA. ERISA's government bureaucracy stuff. I don't want to get into it, but he basically was punishing us and saying, because you guys are working, you're creating work for other people. And those other people are complaining and causing me problems. So I want you guys to stop working so those people will stop complaining and my life will go back to the peace that it was before you guys started causing trouble. And he said, if you don't do it, I'm going to make sure neither of you get the fellowships that you want. And I was stunned. You know, I'm in my early 30s at the time, and I'm still kind of naive and thinking that, you know, we live in a world of honesty and integrity and truth, justice and all that. And you come to find out that that it's not and that we were punished for what I consider to be a noble effort to try and do the best that we could. Man, we were so dejected. We spent the rest of our rotation laying in the call room watching Rudy. The VA has a cable system there, and the one movie they had that month was Rudy, the football player from Notre Dame. We would just lay in our beds and watch that movie over and over again. And uh, I can actually remember we'd let the medical students go and do whatever they do to round on the patients. They would gather the information, and they would come in and present to us. And and um, I can remember one time there was this young girl, medical student, and she's presenting to us. And I'm laying there in the bunk. My Lex is laying in the other bunk on the other side of the room. We're watching TV. And she presents. And then she says, is there anything else I can do for you? And I remember saying, yeah, can you put on Channel 3? Rudy's about to come on. And it was just such a demoralizing situation. We got to the end of that rotation. And Dr. First sent Lex and I to Joe Stonecraps on him, which is a very nice uh, restaurant in in the Miami area that's very difficult to get in. They don't take reservations and and uh, usually you basically have to uh, pay off the mater d's to even get a seat. But he got us in there, and uh, he was basically rewarding us for not working. And I remember looking at Lex, going, "You know what? AJ's rewarding us because we were the perfect VA employees. We showed up late, we left early, and we didn't do anything while we were there." And I just remember that was my that was my raw emotional assessment of the VA after having experienced it. And listen, I've worked at VAs coast to coast over a ten year period. Talked to other people who've done it. There's been articles written um, in uh, Wall Street Journal and other things talking about this is not my opinion. This is a fact. And this is what happens when you get a government uh, run bureaucracy. Now, I had a protege, a medical student from Slovakia, that I really love this kid because he reminds me a lot of me. He's uh, when I was that age. He's 
a nice kid. He's he's um, he's a very virtuous kid. His family. He, he's done a lot of things. I really I love this kid. He's hardworking. He there's nothing he won't do to get better. He's talented in his hands. I mean he's he's actually the most skilled surgeon I've ever seen. And I told him, you know, when when you go back to Slovakia and you start going through your residency, you're going to see how the bureaucracy affects you and how you're responsible for the patient. And a lot of times your support staff is not really motivated by that. They're, you know, we, we talk about the difference between the clock punchers, the clock motivated people, meaning they are trying to make it to the end of the shift. And a lot of times their incentive is to do as little work during that shift uh, and to make sure that nothing happens near the shift. That was one of the things that you always notice. If quitting time was three, if the shift change was at three, the work stops at one because they got to make sure nothing trickles on and gets them past three because they want to be walking out the door at three. So really work stops happening at one. But when you're a work incentivized person like a doctor, we don't get to go to bed till the work's done. There's a lot of tension there because you're constantly trying to work with the, you know, the clock motivated people to accomplish your task because we don't get to go to sleep until the work is done. I'm sharing these pearls of wisdom with this young kid and he's just spent his first year in Slovakia doing his rotation and he sent me a picture of a hip arthroscopy that he was able to do on his own, which is a very, very difficult case. And he was so proud to have accomplished it. And I was like a proud father when he sent it to me. Anyway, I, I, I called him uh, the other day. I wanted to just catch up. And one of the first things he said to me was, man, the bureaucracy at the hospital is just absolutely brutal. And this is what happens when you have a government bureaucracy. It's not it's not if, it's not some, it's the way it is because people do what they're incentivized to do. Now listen, I'm giving you the cynical side first, but when I went to medical school, it, you know, I, I often share the story. It took me five tries before I was accepted into medical school. When I got to medical school, finally, when I was finally accepted on my fifth application, I remember thinking to myself, man, these are going to be the most amazing human beings on the planet. I'm honored, you know, I'm honored to be among them. And when I got there, what I found out was that I probably wouldn't let a significant portion of them touch me or my family with a 10-foot pole and that they had a lot of negative qualities. Now, one of the things that happened in the first two years was the stealing of slides. We have a thing in medicine called histology, where you look at slides of the liver and heart and kidneys, and on a microscopic level, you put it in a microscope, and you have to identify cells and, and, and learn the human body on a microscopic level, and it's called histology. And in order to be able to learn those slides, you would have to go to the lab and pull the slides out and look at them so that you know you could practice recognizing what everything looked like and what people would do was steal the slides so that if i would go to the histology lab and i didn't ever see the slide and it showed up on the test well i wouldn't recognize it because i'd never seen it before and so i wouldn't learn what it looked like and that was a very common practice that other medical students would be stealing the slides to get a competitive advantage over other students and I just remember thinking like, man, this is just not a virtuous behavior among doctors. There was another thing that I always re reflect on that is I take great pride in. Now, anybody who knows me knows I'm a, I can't be, a, I, I, I'm a, 
I'm like a caged animal. I can't stand being in the same spot. I like to move around and gosh, there's nothing I could imagine that would be worse than going to prison. Uh, You see movies with people in solitary confinement. There's no way I could stand it. And it's a real torture to me to have to be in one place for a long period of time. And I also have a bad back. I've always had a bad back. So it hurts. So I like to be able to move around and stretch and do things. When I was a second year medical student, we would rotate into the hospital on cardiothoracic surgery. And the very first thing in the morning, all of the students would get together for case assignments. And so there'd be a board of surgeries and they would assign medical students to the different cases. Now, some of the cases were these long eight hour heart surgeries, very in depth, that were painful. If you got in one of those, you know, I remember you're against the surgeon and down here is the surgeon's PA and you got nurses and assists on the other side. I was new to the operating room, so I wasn't really familiar with masks. And I think with the age of COVID, a lot of us now know how hard it is to wear a mask and glasses. So you put the mask on, you got the goggles covering your eyes. There's no talking. It's cardiothoracic surgery, so it's serious. And all you hear is the beep, beep, beep of the the heart monitor. And not long after you get into the operating room, your mask fogs up so you can't see anything and you can't move. And for eight hours, you know, you're sitting there, you can't talk, you can't see, there's nothing to listen to except that beep and you can't move. And I mean, it was torture. I still think about just, I could never do that again. Now, there were those cases, but there were also these things called ports, little you know, it takes about 10 minutes for a surgeon to put in uh, a venous access for somebody who's going to be getting a lot of injections. They call it a port, uh, you know, chemotherapy or something like that. If you're going to be getting injections over a long period of time, they put this port so that you have access to the veins without having to, you know, start an IV every single time. And these port placements would be about 10 minutes. Now, when we would when we would fall in for that morning selection about who was going to go to what cases, a lot of students, and I mean a lot of them, would head for the bathroom because they didn't want to be there when the selection was taking place. And those heart surgeries were not waiting for anybody. So they picked among the people who were there. And then the stragglers would come back in. Oh, what's left? Oh, just that poor case. So that was a big deal. Eight hours of torture. But not only that, in medical school, where every minute of my day was accounted for studying, eating. I had one hour a day for working out and sleep and study. That was it. Every minute mattered. And you're basically giving up eight hours to stand there, not being able to read and study, whereas the person who put in the port, 20 minutes, they're done. And then they're off studying. So it was a big deal. And I remember thinking to myself, tough times don't test your character Tough times reveal your character. And my father used to tell me, every time you're in a situation, say it to yourself. And say to yourself, how do you want your character to be revealed? Now, I wanted to run to the bathroom every time with everybody else. Not only that, but I rationalized I'd even be justified doing it because everybody else seems to be doing it too. But I heard that little voice of my father in the back that said, don't be that guy. And I would stand there front and center. And more often than not, I got picked for those long surgeries. And I took that for two months. And I'm very proud of that. When I think back over the course of my life and, you know, I'm trying to tell my kids about how virtuous their dad was. Listen, I'm not I'm like all of you. I got flaws, too. I'm not going to share many of those. But 
that's one thing in my life that I was very proud of. And the point I'm trying to make is that doctors are just people. There's some good, there's some bad, there's some talented, there's some not talented. They're just like everybody else. And all of the white coats are not the same. A white coat is not the same as another white coat. We're different. Not only that, but, you know, I always tell people I am not the right doctor for every single person out there. My personality rubs some people the wrong way. I know it's hard to believe, but yes, there are those who, you know, they don't jive with the way I talk and the way I think and the way I carry myself. And that's fine. And those people should have the ability to go find a doctor who meets their criteria, who meets their needs, because the doctor-patient relationship is so important. The delivery of your health care is one of the most important things that you can have in this life. And to get the government-assigned bureaucrat to service you with these perverse incentives, right? I always talk to you about, in my doctor-patient relationship, my fidelity is to my patient. If my patient doesn't like me, they won't be back, and that affects me. When you're employed by the hospital, your fidelity is to the hospital. And so if the hospital implements certain policies, like we've just seen in the last couple of years, let's say there's a certain medication that you want to be prescribed because you've done research on your own and you have a certain respiratory illness, and you say, I want to get this certain treatment, and you go to your doctor, I would like, I've done some investigation, and I would like to have this certain medication, and the doctor tells you, oh, the hospital says I'm not allowed to prescribe it. That just happened. That is a loss of your health care, and it's only one example, and it happens in a lot of areas. Now, listen, some of the most beautiful people I've ever seen in this world are also doctors, people that have really left a huge impression on me. And I remember when I was in my residency on emergency medicines, there was a patient that came in that was burned over 90 plus percent of their body. And a lot of times when you have these severe burns, they don't have pain at the moment because the fire burned away all their nerve endings and they're actually a bit lucid. But when you're missing all that skin, you cannot survive. And I want to say at the time, I I haven't done burn in a long time, but at the time it was sort of known or, you know, if you had 85% or more or more than 85% of your body burn, that those people did not survive. And this person was beyond that, totally lucid. And I remember the doctor went up to that patient. This is emergency room doctor now. This is an emergency room doctor who could have, called the burn people and kind of passed them off and done it. But he just told the patient, he goes, listen, you have a mortal burn. You, you, you cannot survive. They, they could take you and skin graft you and you'll suffer through weeks and weeks. Maybe you'll get infections and you'll eventually die. And he had the courage to talk frankly with this patient. And then he sat there with that patient and he said, is there anybody you would like to call family members, friends and things? And he sat there all night with this patient making those calls. And I just remember thinking I could never have the courage to do that. I I would have definitely called the burn people. And that has always been my weakness. When people have really serious problems, I have a real hard time being a good doctor because I get so emotional. You know, that's one of the things that's so beautiful about um, pediatricians who can deal with problems with children because my heart is so broken, I'm, you know, I, I can't take it and I, I can't function very well. And when you see people that have this ability to really be that sort of, um, you know, iconic image of what you think a doctor is, this all-knowing, all-caring, all-powerful, all-empathetic being, 
and and I don't have that. And I just remember sitting there thinking, like, that doctor, what he did for that patient was so incredible. And and then they they basically gave the patient enough medicine that he expired. He died. And um, I just remember, wow, that guy was a special guy. There was a guy, Dr. Armstrong, who was a, a plastic surgeon who could do microsurgery the way most of us do regular surgery. So we'd be looking through the microscope and he's taking these little tiny veins and arteries and sewing them together as fast as I'm tying my shoes. And I can remember it'd be like two or three in the morning and he'd be looking at you through the microscope and he'd be like, do you want to throw a suture? I mean, it would take me, you know, an hour to get that done. And I'd be like, man, just fix it and let's go to bed. And I just remember thinking, what a talent and what a great person. Two, three in the morning. This guy's a private practice guy. So he was at home with his family, with his wife in bed, and they call him. He's got to come in and do this, but he still had the character to realize that I was going through training. Hey, you want to do it? I know it'll drag the case out, but you know, you need to. Do you want to do it? I mean, a lot of surgeons wouldn't do that. And I just remember thinking, like, man, what a great guy! Not only talented in the hands, but just a really amazing uh, person. Um, I remember the doctor, we used to have this class, Death and Dying. I share this story all the time. But they were trying to teach us in class about how to handle death and dying and what it meant. And so there was this guy that would get up there and share the loss of his 10-year-old son to cancer. And he gave this heart-wrenching, long story about how his son slowly died and how it affected his relationship with his son and how it affected his relationship with his other children, how it affected their family, and how six months after his son died, he, he... he said, I can't remember my son. And he started freaking out. And he called the doctor and he said, I'm forgetting my son. And his son, I mean, the doctor went and bought a tie that had this Norman Rockwell picture of a kid holding a frog wearing overalls, which is what that 10 year old boy loved to do with the frogs. And he left the tie on the patient's de- or the father's desk at work. And he left a note that said, I will never forget your son. I mean, when he said that, the entire room burst out into tears. And I just remember thinking, the the qualities and the character of that doctor to have the compassion and the wherewithal to be able to to do that this is what being a doctor is all about this is what a doctor patient relationship is and we're losing it with the bureaucracy now there's hope you got to vote for people who prom- who promise to allow free market healthcare to work we got to vote against socialized medicine you got to be aware of it don't cede your authority and your power over your own being to other people That's it for today on the Doctor's Lounge. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. We'll catch you next time. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on America's Web Radio. Have a great week. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.